0: So, Dara McGee, that's right, I got that right? Well, it's Dr Dara McGee. All right, doctor, Jesus, here we go, it's gonna be a long (laughs) one. Um, (laughs) Thanks for coming on, Um, I've known you, or we've known you for the best part of, I know what, 14 months now, you joined F45 from the offset, and uh, it's just blossomed ever since. Um, We wanted to get you on, we know you've got a fascinating story, Um, ironically some stuff that I've only recently just found out, so it'd be good to delve into that. academic and sporting background I think for you is pretty exciting so just give us brief introduction what you do how we met why you went to where you went and we'll just roll from that
1: yep Uh, first of all thanks for having me gents Uh, it's a pleasure Hmm. having listened to a few um, I'm in very esteemed company so uh, thank you for having me on here uh, for those who don't know me, I am the banter king uh, oh. of F45 2019. Oh, I'm
2: pretty sure it's me, go. but it's fine.
1: Uh, well, I think the Definitely award. the, the, got the award yeah. so far. We'll the award is important. on my mantle, so I don't think there's any debate about this. Um, for those who uh, for don't know me though, I'm uh, I'm an academic, uh, so I work at the University of Bath and the Department for Health. Um, I'm probably quite uniquely in a podcast that's focused on fitness and and sport and kind of the the cognate areas connected to it uh, my academic work is on sport um, and it very much is connects so perhaps we can unpack some of those uh, relationships as For we sure. go
2: yeah so how did you find yourself living in bath clearly the accent is not local
1: <laughs> i believe i'm one of six uh six. irish accents <laughs>
2: in the in the inner city area uh,
1: very proud to be there um also very proud actually to live in bath but uh, my journey to bath is probably uh, quite a, a long one, um, you know. I left I left Donegal, uh, my beloved Donegal in, in Northwest Ireland, uh, when I was uh, twenty one uh, to do a masters at Loughborough University. Uh, five years over in Canada um, on scholarship, on football scholarship, and uh, and when that came to an end, I suppose I was at that age where if it does, if you don't go pro, you have to make that decision. Uh, you have to get a real job, I guess. Um, and I was I'm probably quite lucky in the sense that uh, my sporting biography was matched by an academic one um, thanks to uh, my mother who uh, made me do a degree at a time where i had no interest in doing one um, but it actually set in motion you know not just a degree but a master's and and a phd but more importantly it set in 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 process a journey over the course of my 20s that, that led me to be an academic and, and doing a doctorate and um and, and i suppose i got to 26 um in toronto had had just finished a, a scholarship for four years and and had the, the absolute time of my life. Uh, you know, I I think I was quite unique in the sense that I knew in the middle of my scholarship that I was actually these were the good old days. And I often talk about that. I knew that it, it didn't get much better than that. You know, you're traveling every weekend with the with the boys, um, and probably not having the pressure of of a professional contract anymore. Um, and I got to probably uh, twenty six, twenty seven. And the offer of a job at the University of Bath came up and uh, it was yeah, it was probably time to make that transition.
2: So from a sporting perspective, give us a, uh, a sense of the journey there. Yeah? Uh, the sporting
1: journey begins um, in the green fields of, of Donegal. Um <laughs> you can picture it now. <laughs> yeah, you can. Uh, it, is, it is a gorgeous place to grow up. I grew up uh, very much in a farming community. And and I think one of the reasons that's important to who I am today is there was no pressure to play sport. I have a father who likes to hunt on the weekends. Uh, he's, you know, he's on the farm, but he has no personal interest in sport. And so there was never any pressure uh, to get involved. There was never, it was very much your choice from the outset, you know. And and I suppose one of the things is when you grow up in the countryside, there's not that much else to do. Um, and I grew up in the era of kind of David Beckham. So, yeah. you, you know, you had the curtains. <laughs> you, you had to have the curtains. You had
2: curtains. Oh, for sure. I, I... Did you know that's like, the uh, shot on Instagram. When, yeah, know,
0: yeah, that's really, it. we we'll that use that as a photo.
1: I was tempted to do kind of a photo journey for you boys today. <laughs> and it would definitely begin with curtains in teenage years. Curtains and acne is not a good look.
0: No. Um, Works for some
1: people. I don't. was convinced I was David Beckham. But um, more importantly, I had the Predators, the Adidas Predators. Yeah. yeah, I had those. I tortured my parents every year for them. Um, but th- there was me and my cousin Stephen and, and just a couple of boys in the area who, you know, that's what you did after school. You got together and, and you played football. Um, that's right. You just kicked about in a way that probably kids don't do as much now. Um, there were less distractions, although probably the, the PlayStation kicked in after uh, after the early there's years. which Nintendo days. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I think my parents were actually quite good at just saying, you know, there's your two hours on your PlayStation, now get outside. Um, yeah. So played for the local teams, uh, very much off my own back. I realized that I was good at the game. I was kind of naturally fit um, and probably just continued that into my early teenage years, got a bit more serious about it. Um, you know, I hit that age, probably 14, 15. Uh, I didn't have any trials over, over in England and, and boys around me did. Um, and so I probably didn't see a pro journey or I probably didn't at that age see the game being that important for me in, in forging a future. Until um, about 14, 15, 16, where a lot of the other boys had alcohol and girls. Mm-hmm. And I was the oldest. Uh, I was the oldest in my f- an extended family, so I had no bad role models. I, mm-hmm. I had nobody to teach me the the bad things. Mm-hmm. And so, as the other boys found alcohol and girls, I was still hanging out with my football. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and so, I actually started to do quite well. Um, Sixteen, seventeen, uh, local club, semi pro, or I suppose if you get paid, it's technically professional. Yeah. Um, so st- started to captain the county at, at that level, and then um signed a contract with with finn harps first of all and um captained their 18 you know 21 side and i broke into the first team um and got very serious about it then i suppose um okay. it started to become central to who i was it was kind of the tea total you know no drinking okay. i was uh fully committed and, and probably a bit too intense when i look back i think if my personality was a bit more chilled i think i would actually i think i would have gone further um, because when i got a wee bit older um I think that's actually what clicked. Is I could relax and chill. And Enjoy I think when you do, yeah, that's right. I think when you're too intense, your ability, your 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 technical ability doesn't get a chance to shine because you're so
0: uptight about it. You put a lot of pressure on yourself. That's right. It's that's the right. same in swimming. You've got some swimmers that are like, live, breathe, sleep, everything. Swimming, social swimming, everything is just circles around that one sport, and then. I just feel that's like so much pressure. I was the complete opposite. It was like, I turn up to training, I leave, I'll hang out with people that don't swim, you don't talk about swimming, that was one rule. And I feel like that was, that for me was the key. It doesn't mean that it works for everyone, but then just hearing you say it, it's like, do you not look back and think, if you could go back, would you be a little bit different? Not like girls and alcohol, but would you be a bit more like laid back, trying to enjoy it a little bit more?
1: I think I would have liked to be. Um, I think you are who you are though. And, you know, if I, if I was good enough, I would have made it to England at that age. Sure. Um, but what's actually, what happened to me was the boys who had gone, who I was competing against, had gone to England. And as they were arriving back, having spent four or five years on a scholarship and then not made not made it as a pro, um, we ended up intersecting in the, the Irish Premier Division. Um, and and we playing alongside each other. And I saw, a lot, I saw a lot of those boys come back kind of broken. Mm-hmm. You know, they'd been commodified for a couple of years. Yeah. They'd been institutionalized. Training two or three times a day, uh, living away from family at a a really kind of vulnerable time in your teenage years. Um, And I saw them become quite disillusioned with it as I was still kind of on an onward, you know, an upward trajectory. Um, That upward trajectory continued uh, for about two years till I got to about 19. Uh, Things were going very well. I got called up to to the Irish uh, under 21 team, uh, albeit minus the pros. So when the, the professionals over in England, we're not going to be part of the squad. They, they brought together basically the best of the rest in Ireland, um, which was still at that stage, you know, that's promising. Uh, yeah. Things are going well. Um, then I probably made a bad move. I left Finn Harps where I was doing really well and in the first team and, and went to Derry City, which were a bigger club. Uh, they were playing in Europe at the time. Uh, they made the, the Europa League. They were playing against PSG, uh, oh, wow. Gothenburg and Sweden. And so that was like, okay, this is, just, and they have so many players who, who after two years at the club gone on to play in the premier league, the, okay. the Scottish premier. Um, and I, yeah, the golden carrot was dangling, you know, and
2: that must be a pretty tempting, it, of
1: course, of course. And you know, there's one thing my dad hates football coaches more than anything. <laughs> uh, and that's because they promise you the world when they need yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. selling the dream. That's right. And if he's heard me sit in that sitting room in our, in our home, uh, talking to coaches once he's heard it a hundred times and it's always the big promises. And it's at that age, it's hard to, if you're ambitious, it's hard to say no. I went um very quickly I realized that I was probably out of my depth. You had proper pros who were 26, 27. They were physically built, technically strong, and more importantly, they were just confident and and professionally structured in their mind. Um so I was captain there under 21s, traveling with the first team, training with the first team every day, which was still a you know a massive experience. Um, but I quickly got disillusioned. And the offer of you know loans came and, and then you know, okay, right, the trajectory's not, it's not where it should be right now. I'm not breaking into this first team here. Um, and so I, I took a couple of loan offers, but then of course you're traveling, you're, you're 19, 20 years of age. Um, and I, I look back now and I'm just delighted that my mother made me do a degree. Right. Um, because I was doing my degree alongside it. And the irony people see now that I'm an academic and, and I'm the geek in the family. <laughs> But the truth is, I was on academic probation for like eighteen months because I was never there. I was never in lectures. You know, the name Dara McGee was always had a red X next to it <laughs> in terms of attendance um, because I was probably either in the car or on a bus traveling probably six or seven hours to a game um, and didn't have time to attend lectures. But found the the reality was on that bus, I was sitting reading and and very quickly finding a love for it. Um, and so I got to a point where I was. 20 years of age I just finished my degree in Belfast um, while traveling up and down uh, the motorway to to Derry and and trying to keep that going and and the option of doing a masters and keeping football going at Loughborough came up and everybody knows kind of the you know the the power of Loughborough as a platform Uh, it was also a great place to continue kind of my academic trajectory and see if that was something I wanted Um, and I thought you know what this is probably this is the perfect choice Uh, so off I went to England I was disillusioned very quickly. Um, I didn't like football there at all. Basically, Loughborough's football programme was a collection of young guys like me who were disillusioned and spat out of the system. Um, Most of them actually worse than me because they'd come out of Premier League academies after six or seven years. And then
2: looking for the next step to try and stay in the game. That's
1: right. Uh, Right. Desperately trying to claw onto the dream, really. Um, Whereas I quickly found over the course of that, it was only one year, but over the course of that one year, I gradually transitioned away from the game because i was yeah. so disillusioned um i you know i i started in the first team at loughborough and i was training every day and, and they really liked me but it was a downward trajectory fast mentally yeah. I, wa- I wasn't there anymore i wasn't enjoying my football because of course to, for, to me it was a step down in my mind anyway um and at the same time i was loving the academic side and i realized okay i'm doing a masters now um you know nobody in my family had gone even to a masters at that point i'm quite a working class rural background you know and and I thought, maybe this is actually for me. And, and uh, by the end of the year, I transitioned to the point where there were PhD offers, so offers to go and do a doctorate. Um, and I was willing to take offers that didn't involve football at all. So I'd reached the point where it was basically not for me anymore. Um, and yeah, ironically, the story is that uh, that was probably the most important point because an offer comes up to go to Canada to do doctorates. Uh, there was no talk of football at first. And so I accepted this offer to, to move to Toronto uh, 22 years of age and our 21 coming 22 and uh, so still very young but I was very keen now having kind of been totally committed to football for six or seven years you realize that you don't travel and you know you haven't had a drink and the boys around you're all going and you know they're going to Magaluf and, and they're going to places and, and you're not um you're just you know you're in the car or the bus yep. five days a week um and so I accepted this my parents again encouraged me to take this offer and, and head to Toronto and um it was the best thing that ever happened to me both in the sporting sense and an academic one, because before long I realized that, uh, yeah, the two things can work together. Um, and, and the story goes that I actually, I got this email from the head coach in Toronto. Um, they'd obviously looked at their incoming uh, PhDs or somebody had flagged up basically that this guy was coming in that could play. Um, and so I get this email saying, you know, can I just verify some of these details? Have you held <laughs> these contracts and, and represented your country? And, and uh, wrote back, not given a hoot. Yeah. I, I had no real commitment, no interest. I said, "Yeah, that's me." Um, and now all the guys who you know are, are are really close friends of mine, and a big part of my life. They'll tell the story on the other side, where there was this Irish guy that was going to come in, um, <laughs> and they were being told about this guy who who actually uh, what well, they had they had a guy come in from France the the year before who was a total dud. So the, the story was that I was probably going to be a dud as well. Okay. Um, but uh, the one thing they did expect me to be was basically they had this image of like this Irish guy who was going to come in and like drink them under the table. And <laughs> he was going to, you know, he was going to be the leader of this team. Yeah. And then I turned up and I was teetotal.
0: Um,
2: <laughs> Just blew all stereotypes out yeah,
1: of the All stereotypes <clears throat> gone. Um, yeah. The reality after a week was that they were so disappointed that I didn't drink that haven't been teetotal for all my young life. I broke within two weeks <laughs> in Canada. Really?
0: <laughs> I'd had a
1: beer within two weeks. And I think, you know, Chris, this is something you can probably relate to. I think when I look back now, my parents were so disappointed because I was the role model for not just the extended family, but probably like the entire area at this point. <laughs> Dara doesn't drink, so, you know. Yeah. Um, But when I look back now, that was me kind of saying, you know what? I want to live now. I'm 22 and I deserve to kind of, you know, have a bit of, have a bit of crack. Yeah. Um, If I'm going to do this, I'm going to enjoy it. And I think that's part of that loosening up. That was part of that chilling out. Yeah. Um, you know, my identity wasn't entirely attached to the game. Um, and as a result of that, very quickly, I started to enjoy myself. And, and by the end of the first year in Toronto, um, things had gone very well. I was offered the captaincy uh, of the program. Um, and also just the, you know, you arrive over there and you think you're taking a step down but in terms of facilities you're taking a step up you know it was incredibly professional you were treated you were treated like sporting royalty you had um you know fizzy was around the clock you had brilliant training facilities you had a lovely stadium um so you had everything you'd you'd ever want you know and you were traveling with the boys every weekend and you're seeing a new country so i'll never forget one of the stories uh, of a guy who's a good friend of mine now you know he'd on our, on our away trips he'd, he'd come on darry you got to see this in october november time he's like you got to see the changing of the leaves and i'll never forget that being a 22 year old in canada i was like all right i'm this is what i wanted yeah. i'm traveling i'm still playing the game my identity my livelihood's not attached to it um but here i am looking at like stunning scenes in the north of canada yeah and very quickly i, I fell in love with it amazing um so i would go on to spend uh four good four and a half good years in Canada, um, captain in the team, and, and being very successful. Uh, so with, within the second year, I had um, I wasn't only captain in the program, we were a very successful program. Um, so I'd, I'd got MVP for the league two year running. I had been in, uh, it's, you know, the Canadians, North Americans love to give awards anyway, and they yeah. always sound great, but I was a Canadian all-star. Yes. Um, for for two years running basically that means favor. that's right that's right that means well, basically there's 11 players chosen across the entire country which is a giant country yeah. um and i was in that two years running you know in, in center mid so um i was absolutely loving it and it was that perfect balance between what was a high pressured academic kind of journey for me too i was now doing a doctorate and um and, and growing up um but i was i was playing the game at probably a level i was i was more set up to excel at anyway right. um but in the process fell back in love with the game uh,
2: i'm interested in the um the facilities piece as well and just the, the kind of professionalism of it you know the the resources that you have all of the the training facilities and the and the coaches and the physios and the nutrition did, did that do you think it do you think it gave the the whole um group a better standard in general compared to sort of what you'd come from before the story I always remember about my
1: arrival in Canada was that I arrived quite... Uh, I was probably quite well-built. I was probably too big for a football at the time. You know, we are in the gym, lifting. My brother, actually, my younger brother who lifts a lot, he constantly recounts this story about how I arrived in Canada much bigger. And by the time I'd come home at Christmas, or certainly the next Christmas, I arrived and everybody's like, you're too skinny. You're too skinny. Mm-hmm. And I got to the point where I used to get so annoyed about it, I'd whip off my shirt and be like, I'm not skinny at all. <laughs> I'm actually... I'm actually, what are you about? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, Chris is here is my, now my role model for it. Uh, I'm like a blushing bride. Uh, but uh, I, I'm, that's the story that kind of reminded me that I arrived there thinking I was technically very good. I was probably better than a lot of the boys I was, I was training with. But physically, that, that's the stereotype when you arrive and kind of even MLS standard, you know, football in the States, um, you, there'll be athletes. They may not be technically strong, okay. um, but I found it really kind of refreshing. I I learned things about my body. For example, one of the things that I've never forgotten, I still do it all the time now, uh, when people actually make fun of me at the gym when I'm using my foam Foam roller roller, and doing some of my stretching. Yeah, it looks a bit creepy, but um, it has a purpose. Um, But one of the things was we had, um, he was a brilliant physical trainer, but before games we had this kind of pre-activation yoga routine and teams would laugh at us coming out, you know, this is like an hour before the game, or forty-five minutes before, like your warm-up. Uh, we used to come out and do this kind of pre-activation uh, yoga routine. So lots of downward dogs, lots of stretching, lots of kind of very light, um, you know, just a, a kind of pre-warm-up mm-hmm. in some ways. Um, and that, that, although it was made fun of, it gave us a sense of professionalism, and you know, injuries reduced. And and very quickly, yeah. you started to you started to learn things about your body that when you come in as a 21-year-old, 22-year-old, especially in the game of football where, you you know, as a swimmer, Chris, the the marginal gains are so fine that you guys are thinking about all that all the time. Like sprinters, for example, they'd be, you know, sprinters would be on the track when we're on the field in the evenings and I'd always watch them and think, you know, that hamstring has to be so strong for that one race, whereas footballers get away with so much, yeah, especially given the the lineage of football, you know, in, in the pub and kind of the lads' culture. Um, and, and North America taught me a very, very different version of the game. There was no, there was no bearing during the week. There was no, do you know what I mean? That that yeah. wasn't there. And you, you, uh, you definitely learned things about your body that you just didn't know before. And I've carried them with me throughout uh, my time since.
0: You spoke about, oh, well, we touched briefly on injury. Is yeah. that something you came across throughout your sporting endeavours? Yeah.
1: Um, I look back now, and I think, yeah those who kind of knew me in Canada, I was, by the third season in Canada, I was really starting to tear it up and was loving the game was a much more chilled out version of me. Um, And there were opportunities uh, to, to think about a a kind of route back into the professional game at some level. And I was, you know, I was very tempted or at least flattered, you know, it's, it was like, okay, right. I knew I was good. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, less have still got it than you've got it at all. Yeah. Um, but uh, and so I was I was starting to entertain the idea of putting my PhD on hold um, and to think about a route back into the game like the USL and um, in, in the States, uh, it's a league below the, the MLS, um, but a, a really good standard, you know, and, um, and it, it would be an, at the time it would be another adventure. And I was thinking very much about it. And then uh, disaster struck um, two weeks before the, the national championships, which is also massive for the team. I um, just a, a routine game. I turned in the center of midfield and tried to play a one-two with the guy beside me. And that's the last thing I remember. Really? Um, no one near me. Of course, 4G pitches in North America, they're everywhere. Um, and this was one of them. And yeah, I was, the next thing I knew, I was in total shock. Turns out I'd basically, at the time I wasn't certain, I managed to limp off with, with the help of somebody, but the referee looked at me and he says, your eyes aren't facing in the right direction, son. And so, but, but the crazy thing is I didn't feel anything um, because it would later transpire that I tore my ACL uh, basically with such absolute certainty. Uh, t- uh, I'm told that 20% of your ACL doesn't have nerve fibers and I told it basically it was blowing in the wind and I torn it where there was no feeling, um, but the shock was there. Um, so within two days, yeah, I couldn't move. Um, turns out I'd done what people call the unholy triad which is to tear your ACL, uh, your MCL, so your, your medial collateral ligament uh, and your lateral meniscus. Um, not something you want to do. Um, and I'll never, I'll never forget being with uh, the surgeon. He's a really, really well-known surgeon. Uh, he's, he's an academic at the, the University of Toronto uh, who had done the assessment and looked at the, the MRIs and, and he came into the room and there I am sitting in the bed and he goes, look, I'm, I'm sorry, son you've torn your ACL with 100 certainty your 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 careers over wow and at the time I obviously broke down I was you know Naturally. devastated turns out later he meant my varsity career he didn't mean my football career um because he thought I had one year left of eligibility and so yeah. he thought that he thought basically you won't play again this season so you you won't play here at this university again um turns out he just told me my life was about to end and instead um we've we've laughed about it since but um it was a devastating thing at the time um and there was definitely some some rough times ahead um one of the things that yeah i look back now and you know i also met my wife in toronto and and the truth is i was 24 years of age and probably at a stage where i wasn't thinking about settling down and that knee injury and the help and i suppose it just forced you well, you're in bed for a couple of weeks, you're, you're bed bound. And um, yeah, I was probably not an, an easy patient uh, and we we grew close then. So all these things, I suppose, m- my journey to Canada, yeah, was, was one that shaped me in many ways. But, yeah. um, but I suppose one of the biggest things for people, uh, if there's anyone listening to this, um, one of the biggest things I would probably highlight is the way in which injury for me became this uh, kind of spiritual philosophical journey that has totally changed me since. Um, like obviously injury is devastating and, it, and it, it kills some of your dreams and your opportunities that, that you might want to uh, achieve. But I think it's also an opportunity to learn about your body in a way that you probably would never do unless you're forced. Um, it also humbles you uh, as a young man, I think, you know, when you tear your ACL, you literally have to begin again. And within a week, you have to, within a week of the surgery, you have to be able to straighten. So you have to get full extension of your leg. And yeah, my memory is of trying to do so and you just can't. And so you've got these therapists who are with you that are trying to help you straighten your leg. They've got electrotherapy pads on your quads, trying to get them to fire because you the muscle wastage kicks in. Um, and I remember them forcibly trying to straighten my leg and there's tears running down your face. Yeah, You're not crying, but the pain is, is so intense. Um, and I, I think it it definitely in the early days is difficult but day by day I think if you can think about you know I've heard many people on this podcast talk about discipline and routine and regimen and and that being kind of the key to their success I think injury actually forces you to do so in a way that you, you can't rush <laughs> you know you literally have to take a day I remember turning up at the gym uh, within a week or two and and just, you know, I was sitting there, sitting on one of the benches and all I was there to do for the next 30 minutes was to tense my quad. <laughs> I've
0: been in the same boat. I ruptured my ATFL, like to clean off the bone. And I'm a swimmer, so it's like, or was a swimmer, so that's, you know, we don't have the same sort of impact or it's pretty low risk other than drowning. But, you know, you can usually swim. Um, but yeah, ruptured my ATFL and then like, after, like I said, not quite the same, but obviously breaking through the scar tissue and just trying to get it moving, flexion, all that sort of stuff then you go to the gym 2 weeks in and everyone's there and it's like you just want to get back into it but I was there I was sat in the corner and I got my theraband tied around my foot and I'm just moving my foot plantar flexion dorsiflexion just all of that sort of stuff and it's it's demoralizing but it's one of those things it's like I wanted to get back to it it wasn't career ending for me but it was like it's a long ass journey just of con- and it can it never stops as well I want that ligament's gone I don't have that ligament anymore which is why I have so many problems rolling my ankles now like just walking back from the shops but um it is it, it, it teaches you certain things and it's a uh, it's very much like you said one door shuts another one opens like you've you know you met your wife came back and you are
2: where you are today so on that road to recovery piece i'm really interested for, to hear both your views on this because even quite often actually when you are a bit of an amateur enthusiast you know you might pull something or whatever or you you go and see a physio or an osteopath or a chiropractor whatever it may be and you'll get that physio kind of advice but i can tell you from personal experience to actually commit to the physio regime even though you might be sat on the sofa three hours a night and all you need to be doing is kind of rolling out you don't do it no. right and so what, what's the mental piece around committing to recovery because i've i've chatted to a lot of people about this friends of mine that we just you know we just run or we just cycle yeah and the discipline to actually do the exercises you're prescribed for a three four five week period it's really difficult you just for whatever reason i think it line. plenty on the of hours line, right? in the day to do it but you just don't do it
0: it, it depends what's on the line i think i think i speak for both of yeah. us like it's for me, it was because it's the career, so it, it was right. like I was like I wasn't done. I only I still didn't have Olympic cycle to go, and it was like there are days when you don't want to do it. But I'm like, if I want to get back to anywhere or be competitive again or keep doing this at top level, then well, I have to do this. Your proprioceptive work just to make everything else stronger because you're now missing a ligament is that's your drive, really. I mean, some people I suppose do skip it, but then that's when you find yourself doing the same thing again, like. You want to get back on the pitch you know and it's high you know turning on point and all of that sort of stuff if you haven't strengthened what you've got around it then you'll just you'll do it again and again and again so it's you kind of have to take ownership i suppose but
1: you do it really depends what's on the line i think and and you go through a stage of, of grief first of all why did this happen to me i didn't deserve this to happen to me you know i was doing everything right and you come through that then and you start to think with a bit more clarity and then it's like okay why, why do I want to come back? What is on the line for me? Though I have to say, I had a scholarship on the line, and very quickly the the head of uh, University of Toronto's athletic program basically said, "Look, your 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 scholarship at Stanford is. Don't you worry about that. That will be there when you're when you're back on the field." In and I remember she put a date on it, and I was like, "Okay, right." Well, she thinks I'm coming back. Okay, um, and it's the people around you then that are really really important. I was extremely lucky in the sense that, for example, the, those listening to this who will know what a game ready is. Yeah. I don't know if you use those, Chris, yeah. but you know, a seriously expensive bit of kit, I was sent home with one of those mm. four days after my surgery and was able to keep it you know, at our apartment for, for the week after. I was getting 24 hours ice on and off wow. treatment. And so, you know, if you come from, I come from quite a humble background and you can't help, but be humbled by that then and you have people who are doing things for you. I think if you don't kind of get your shit together and step up then, then it's actually says something about your character. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, and so, and also I was very lucky. I had two therapists who would look after me every day. So I was really, really fortunate. You know, immediately after surgery, I had two people waiting on me at an appointed time every day. And so in the early days, where you maybe were struggling for the motivation yourself, you had people to help you. Um, but after that, yeah, it becomes this kind of becomes this journey that is what you make it to be. Um, you can complain or you can actually like I learned things about my body that I just didn't know. I learned that I got the ACL because I had tendonitis in my knee because I wasn't doing enough strength work. OK. In the middle of a grueling season. So these things happen sometimes for no reason. But there there are also things you can do to be better, you know. And, um, But, you know, Chris mentioned the way in which one door closes and another opened. I was in Canada ultimately to do a doctorate yeah. and this regrounded me in a way that was very important for where I am now. Um, so basically I set very quickly a schedule um, within three months, if you were able to run, which is an aim for anybody trying to play professionally after having an ACL. Um, I decided that my field work, so I, my doctorate kind of very much was intersecting with my sporting life. My, my PhD was set out to explore basically how young West Africans Ghana Cote d'Ivoire, two countries that are football mad. I was really interested in the way in which young, basically, a generation of of young boys, young men there, aspire to play football in Europe. I was interested in, in the meaning of football there, but I was in, also interested in the journeys they aspire to and what happens them along those journeys. So, for example, agents, academies, professional clubs uh, from Europe are searching across West Africa looking for young athletes, um, and so I had to do fieldwork as part of my doctorate. I wanted to get out there and immerse myself in that world. Um, and I, when I look back now, the ACL came at the perfect time. My fieldwork was to be six months to a year. Um, and so basically I set out to, as soon as I was at three months and ready to run, I would head off for West Africa for my 68 months fieldwork. Um And so my story, and yeah, the, the most beautiful element of my field work was, or my fieldwork and my recovery is that I did them together hmm. and I was recovering while studying the game and why young west africans basically aspire to have their future anchored through the game um, what that looks like in, in reality is waking up at 5am in ghana in the middle of nowhere and training with i started as part of my recovery at, at one of the academies i started basically playing with the six and seven year olds now these are mercurially talented mm. young guys yeah. like they are i mean again one of the pictures i was going to bring in today is me sitting having breakfast with uh, three West African boys, two of them are now professionals in Europe. Um, okay. So this was no ordinary academy. Academy. Um, and so I, I did my recovery alongside basically six, seven, eight-year-olds as I started to progress. I went with the nine and 10-year-olds. And I basically trained every day as a pro again, but alongside kids who would do anything for the opportunities that I'd yes. had, would do anything for the level of privilege that I'd had. And so here I was with like very little by way of equipment, like, you know, there wasn't a, a great gym or there wasn't the, the, the facilities I had back in Toronto. But now I had this kind of galvanizing sense of perspective yeah. about how lucky I was.
2: That's an incredible paradigm, isn't it? It's
0: ridiculous. It's mad.
1: It is genuinely transformational when you wake up at 5 a.m., you know, and, and you have these kids who are already out there stretching, ready to go. And you're like, well, why am I not? Yeah. Um, and so it became yeah my six months in west africa became this kind of recovery journey i sent back reports to the university in toronto to say look you know things are going well uh, there was a physio at the academy i remember doing you know one of the big things about an acl recovery is starting to jump and to to, to plant mm-hmm. and to get used to the idea of planting and turning which you know you can't play the game of football without turning and one of the nightmares that i would have post-injury was the idea of turning and my knee turning into ash so I'd wake up, sweats in the middle of the night. Um, this is the kind of, that's the psychology of injury yeah. that nobody talks about is is the way it, it takes on these kind of strange manifestations in your dreams.
2: Was there any support in the rehab cycle for the mental aspect of it?
1: Uh, probably not formalized. I think you'd probably have to request that. But I think, you know, the informal support through therapists, et cetera, is really good anyway. Um, and yeah, I, I couldn't have wished for any more than that, you know. Sure. Um, although I, I do remember, and I think it's still out there on the internet somewhere, uh, I did start a blog in the early days of my injury, and it is cringeworthy to read now. <laughs> I am the most emotionally available young man <laughs> in the history of young men.
2: Let's um, get a link to that. Yeah. Up on the, uh, the on the one
1: of them is basically this narrative about me turning up to the stadium the first night uh, f- to watch the boys play in crutches, you know, coming along, still probably high on painkillers. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's cringeworthy stuff, but you know what? That's what it's cringeworthy when you look back after from a position of certainty and stability, but at the time you're not stable. And you know, it. the more you understand, the more I think elite sport understands about that and, and helps to support is such an important thing. Um, the, to cut a long story short on injury. I came back uh, from West Africa at the end of my field work. I arrived right back on the first day of preseason. And, you know, the, the, the head coach is like, right, you know, we've got a special program for you. You know, you, a couple of weeks now, we'll, we'll gradually integrate you. And he he's a man I, I very much respect. Um, and he did this thing, first thing on pre-season, first thing you would do on, on the first morning of preseason was a 12 minute run around the track and you had to hit eight laps. So you've got all the guys, all the trialists, doesn't matter who you are, whether you're the captain, whether you're, you know, hot shit, you are on that line, mm-hmm. 20, 30 of you, and off you go when the whistle goes and you're going for 12 minutes, how far can you get? And it was nothing to do with the fitness. It was everything to do with character. And I remember saying to him walking into the change room that morning, and he was probably treating me a bit fragile, you know? Um, and I said, no, no, I'm, I'll be on the line in 15 minutes. And that was the only way you could do it. You had yeah. to, you had to decide because you were coming back in as captain. And if people see you as kind of, you know, he's fragile, he's, he's kind of done, you know, I, I grew up in an era of Roy Keane and, uh, I think, yeah, you got to be on that line, and you yeah. got to have a go, you know. Yeah. And after, yeah, I nailed the fitness test, and and nobody looked at you after that as yeah. as injured. Yeah. All of a sudden, you'd made that transition back to being who you were Stand before. The authority down. That exa- yeah, You have to absolutely. And that's that's where you know you can take sports important to your life, but you can take moments like that into your working life, into your life generally. Um, it's you have to step up and and kind of show your character.
0: Okay, so. Let's go with go from Canadian All Star, I quite like that. Mm -hmm. Captaincy, all all of these sort of high accolades or titles. Um, One thing that we've touched on before is identity. Um, Something I had to battle with going through my retirement, and obviously something that you moving to this country, moving to Bath, um, maybe not directly the same but obviously something that you've had to re-establish in a new a new city so less, i think that's something interesting that people uh, will value so yeah what's your take
1: um my take is well my experience is that uh i basically reached the end of my scholarship in in canada and and was coming to the end of my doctorate um and it was like okay I'm, i'm 27 now uh i I realized that i had literally lived out the good old days in terms of football i I genuinely was delighted with the experience i had i made friends for life uh when when money was taken off the table in toronto like when your livelihood is not attached to the game but you're in you're still in a program that's playing at a high level and you're together with the boys all the time it's the perfect balance that is i think where sport is at its sweet spot where you're not it's not dog eat dog and so you can genuinely have relationships with the guy beside you rather than him being your competitor that ultimately is, is on a higher wage than you. And hence, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I, I, I'd, I'd been delighted with that. And, and so, um, finished the doctorate and was like, okay, it's time to transition to, uh, being a full on geek now. Um, you know, I'm Dr. Dara now. And was Dr. like, Dara. gotta go out and make my way as Dr. Dara instead of, um, instead of kind of Dara. Hall of Famer. But there's no Hall of Famer. <laughs> but, uh, um, but, uh, yeah. So moved to Bath. And I suppose one of the things I've, I've mentioned to Chris before is, you know, you arrive in Bath and you, you arrive at the university, which is such a different. I'd always kept these two elements of my life completely separate. The sporting kind of self, the the individual I was as an athlete and as a captain of, of a group of young men. And then the academic me, the academic world is so different. Uh, it was a world that immediately kind of aged me, it matured me uh, when I was in that kind of space. And I probably was a bit more immature in it. A bit more hypermasculine uh, in this in the sporting sphere. Um, and when I arrived in Bath, all I had was the academic side. Um, and I, I think it's quite difficult when you arrive into a city and you are known as you know being the captain of the team. You aren't, your sporting identity was central to who you thought you were, if not if not who others think you are. Um, not that that comes with ego. Not that that with that you know it's not about it's not about ego at all. Um, it's about your sense of self and and your the stability of who th- you think you are. You know, we generally humans thrive when they have a, s- a stable sense of self. When they when they are happy in who they are, and 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 I mean, I suppose people that recognize that and, and value that. Um, and one of the probably the the struggles I have when i arrived in Bath was okay. There's a fitness scene here. I was plunged into an academic job probably a wee bit early, and so I had to kind of run instead of crawl in my academic life. Yeah. Um, had to publish quickly. I had to apply for grants had to learn the ropes probably quicker because I'd probably I'd played too much football during my doctorate you know it is quite a difficult thing to do a lot of people would be solely focused on their PhD and when I actually snagged a job early now I had to actually uh, again that's where your kind of sporting life helps you out you you just get down and get at it um, just like you would with training but um, one of the difficult things is turning up to you know I remember turning up to F45 this time last year and and uh, the guy at the front desk is like, okay. And he gives me the health check. And he's like, you know, ah, have you ever trained before? And I was like, I've done a bit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you, you're back at, you're at point zero. You have to explain who you are. You you kind of have to begin again and, and forge an identity for yourself. If you're not a footballer now, who are you? And and, and what is your life in fitness terms become after that? i mm. um, 45, was very good for me because, you know, when I arrived in Bath for a couple of, for a year before that, I'd kind of, let my fitness go, um, as naturally when you're working long hours. Yeah. One of the things when you hang out with personal trainers lots is sometimes they forget that you are you are solely committed to something else seven, eight, ten hours a day anyway. Um, and your your gym time is like your precious escape. This yeah, is a I choice. Yeah. yeah. At the end of the day, and um, and so that was a a big transition to kind of finding. Finding what you, who you want to be. And I remember arriving in my body fat was probably, you know, 16%, 18%, which to your average member of the public is completely fine. But to you, it was like, oh, I'm in a slump here. Mm. Um, this is probably the highest been It's probably the highest being my, in my, you know, since you're a kid. Yeah. Um,
0: That's relative, isn't it? Yeah, it, is course, yeah. it is, of course. It
1: is, of course. And I remember just over those first couple of weeks, you know, just... Grinding it out and, and yeah, just grinding it out and and not paying any attention to anybody and, and gradually you know you're not enjoying it you don't enjoy hit training in in the early days anyway because it is is what well, you're breathing out of your ass yeah and, uh, and can't think straight most of the time um but gradually over the weeks you start to refine who you are yeah and within a couple of weeks something clicks in you if you are a competitive person who <laughs> who knows who knows what it's like to be fit and knows what it's like to kind of push through not the pain barrier but that pain pleasure crazy place that fitness takes you to when you're when you're at the cutting edge of it and yep. when you're approaching exhaustion um i think i started to find that again and that becomes i don't like the word drug but it becomes addictive. it does become highly addictive yeah um and you start to refine elements of who you are in that you know and and you know you bring out. look I, I found that yeah um you bring all the the knowledge you have with you and um because head training can of course be quite bad for you if you if you overdo it becomes quite attritional and your body breaks you down um, but bringing all the stretching and, and knowledge of how to lift as well, um, you, you gradually find yourself. And I suppose if your professional life is going well, you're, you're okay with the identity that you've lost as an athlete. But I think, you know, you look at a lot of ex-athletes and it, it it's, well, it is it's something we talk a wee bit more now about, but the the mental toll mm. of exiting what is an institutionalized way of life. Like you are, you know, Chris has talked about the, the way in which you're first thing in the morning, you're training, last thing at night, you're either eating or thinking or stretching or your life, in other words, is just entirely channeled to being the best you can be as an athlete. Um, and it's quite hard when you have to realign who you are to training for two hours a day or an hour and a half in the
2: evening. Yeah, that, that transition out is, is something we, we spend a lot of time kind of uh, talking about. And there's some really high profile kind of car crashes let's say um of people that have come out of the sporting arena but what's your thoughts on on people that you've known how they've sort of handled it the support network that's out there obviously there's a lot that needs to be done just in oneself and your mental strength there
0: i don't know that's uh, it's obviously something that's talked about a lot and um i know dara's talks about it as well um but transition obviously is it's hard for anyone i think and again for me it, it for me it just came down to identity and like i had a good support system in play and and swimming swimming wasn't the biggest sport like it's not even though you talk about your support team you have um physios and soft tissue and therapists and all that sort of stuff it's like to get that in swimming you had to be like top 20 in the world yeah so i had that around me and it was good but then i still feel like one of the hardest parts, and obviously you read a lot about it today, it's um, something that's highly spoken about, um, is the support you get after that transition or after retirement. And I think a lot of companies or governing bodies or, and I'm not criticising anyone, but other than like my own sport, there was no checkup, there was no follow on, there was no, not even like, oh, hey, a year later, how's things? How's, how's work? How's the transition been? Um, and I can see how people fall into like that really dark place and how it gets really tough. Um, I fell in it myself, but I feel like I had enough support around me and a strong enough character that learned from it, learned a, b- a lot about myself like you would through injury, um, overcome it, and now thriving in what I do outside. But obviously it's sad to see so many other people going through it. You know, I've had friends that have gone through it, and I don't think, unless you've been there yourself, it's really hard to appreciate how losing that identity feels so is it your opinion that the system so to speak
2: really could benefit the tra- the almost like exit surveys as we would we would sort of say in our kind of industries where you know you it's not that you want to know what's gone wrong necessarily because in your sport you know you're, you're leaving probably for a reason but they could be preparing people for that transition I think, and yeah. also i think help people maybe whether it's saved during, you know, the professional very short window of being a professional when the money's coming in versus the transition when you've then got to find the job. There's 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 finances, there's um, yeah, education, <laughs> there's yeah, there's so many elements that when you're young, and we always talk about how do you put an old head on young shoulders. Yeah. Maybe education actually would help by learning from those people that have come out. And clearly, it's not going to help necessarily you guys, but it would help the next generation that comes There is, There is stuff in place. Right. They're
0: like they they are 100 ticking boxes. We have performance lifestyle advisors, people that you know. Alex Bailey, all credit to him. He helped me write. You know, I'm, at 28, they're like, you need to write a CV. I'm like, well, I've only ever swum. I never I've never worked a day in my life. Yeah. And they're like, okay, well, it's like you need some USPs. My like, also USP like. <laughs> Honestly, so to sit there week on week, go over drafts, and just try and pull something together that, when I sit back and read my first ever CV, I'm like, "Oh like, shit!" Like I actually it actually sounds pretty cool. I'm like, "That's not me," but, you know, <laughs> I was securing my own sponsorship deals without an agent with Ford and Adidas, and you know, being a humble person, ironically, is it, giving yourself credit where it's it's due. And like, I would never think I could write, make myself sound like that on a bit of paper as a CV, but there are things in place. It's just, I think sometimes it's, so the larger larger organizations can tick a box to say that they do do it. Because at the end of the day, I understand that I, or Dara, you're a commodity for a larger organization. So they get bonuses for the medals that I bring to the table. And as soon as I stop bringing medals to the table, I am actually just costing them money to be in a system. So I understand it from a business standpoint, but then I'm like, if I've dedicated 12 years of my life to representing the country, to at least check up just be like oh how are things doing or like actually like do you want to come in and like talk to some of the uh, like the upper, like grassroots or kids coming up being like talk about your transition because it's it's almost like a taboo subject no one talks about it unless you're outspoken and all of these athletes are now speaking up and it's in the newspaper it's like why don't the governing bodies get representatives from their sport in to go this transition was tough this is how i think we can do better at it see when i think about business and how relevant
2: this is you don't want to lose that institutional knowledge so you get consultants or people that have learned it and been successful and added the value to the company at the time then they either go and sell that skill set to other companies that exactly. want to learn from where you were why would when there's such a heavy investment and let's not forget particularly in your sport when that money's coming from things like national lottery and stuff like that yeah to be able to reinvest that, because that there is a value to that knowledge, right, and
0: that expertise. So, this is, so to lose it out of the end of the system seems to me this is what pissed me off the most. It's like I was then sat there talking to, I mean they did well, but like I went through a load of performance lifestyle advisors, trying to understand my story, and I'm like you've you don't you have no idea what I'm going through now. And as much as I appreciate you're trying to help, you have no idea how I feel. You don't you don't understand what I'm going through, and you don't appreciate how hard this is. Whereas you could, like you said, keep people like myself or Dara in the institution, giving back to the community, okay, you then, you're making a bit of money because you're paid for your appearance, so great, you're helping a former athlete out, but then it's also just, like, credible knowledge that you can't get unless you've been through it yourself, like, when I do my swim clinics and swim camps, I'm talking to these kids, or, like, the parents are like, how was the transition, and I'm like, I can sit here, be open and honest about it, I'm not going to lie, I'm not going to sugarcoat it and be like, oh, it's amazing, I landed on my feet, like, it was dark. It was hard, but I'm a better person for it. Sure. And then maybe people would be more prepared, or prepare their kids, or someone will listen and just take, just take credit for it, and just just help people going through it because it's not easy. And you can see where people get it really, really wrong. So
1: yeah, there's also no comparison between me and and, and Chris. Um, you do have commercial value. It's just, I suppose, sometimes we forget that sport is one of the few institutions on earth where you literally buy and sell human ability like human your technical or your physical ability is actually up for sale something that's traded and exchanged legally there's no other industry comparable Um, but there's also sport like the military the skill set is so extraordinary and intensely unique to to where you've been and i think the military is probably a good example because you also see you know ex-soldiers spat out the other end and they've, they've literally put their lives on the line in support of the nation in times of war or whatever. Um, and athletes feel the same way. They've kind of, especially those who represent their, their countries or their nations, um, you're going, you know, to compete on behalf of what is supposed to be a larger community. Um, but ultimately your commercial value is only,
0: is only. Did you get a medal? That was it. Also bonus. How much bonus do I get? Like that was, that was, that was what we were seeing as you had a medal target. If you hit that medal target, all the coaches and the the big dogs get a massive payout. Like, that was just, as soon as you stopped hitting those. Yeah.
1: And you do see, you know, swimming's probably quite unique. Football, obviously, is incredibly commercialised now at the, the highest level. And you've actually gone almost the other way where you have athletes themselves, individuals. So think of the Paul Pogba's of the world. They, as brands, are almost as big as the clubs and the institutions that they represent. And they come with an entourage of, you know, really astute business people, agents, uh, marketing firms. Um, whether it leads to them being better off in terms of mental health, I'm not sure, but they certainly are set up financially in a way that's that's uncomparable to the past. But I suppose I was at Harvard a couple of years ago, um, visiting a prof there who basically runs a course now. Uh, she takes she's become very famous because she has a lot of, you know, the lot of the the biggest footballers in the world. Kaká was in the course when I was there, and uh, basically it's all about how to ensure you as you're transitioning towards the end of your career how you either set up opportunities to come, how you realize the unique brand that you have created. And again, that's still commodifying commercialized language, like you're taking what you were and selling it, but at least that's the athlete looking after themselves as they transition out, rather than literally being spat out or dropped when their abilities, when their performance declines, basically. Um It's a, it's a big issue. It's also, you know, one of the biggest issues, and I don't know if a swimmer feels it the same way because you don't have the communal bond that for example footballers do and team sports do one of the biggest things you struggle with is the idea that you don't have a tribe around you
0: anymore yeah I mean for me yeah, I, com- I completely get that and uh, it's, it is similar because obviously even as an individual sport I spent I went to Australia I spent three years training with the same eight lads obviously like you create that little brotherhood and then you come back to Bath 10 or 12 years where I was you know training with the same 16 people um, and then but one of the key things for me was making sure I had, like, my real support circle was outside of swimming. So as soon as I left, that was it. Like I, I had, I wasn't on my own. I still had my my plus my family, my circle of friends. So that I think in essence helped make mine a little bit smoother. But from a, like a football perspective, it must be you are just stepping out into the big bad world, and you're not part of the everyday training or you just everything you're done is together so it's it's a different life when you step out i imagine It,
1: it definitely keeps i think young men infantilized in a way because you have you know you have these incredibly talented young men who basically have everything laid on for them so you don't even learn to cook you know what i mean and and you do that for 10 or 15 years and then boom you're out of it um so there's you know sport is glorified as being such an important part of culture and who we are and the stories we tell about each other but It does have these elements that we don't talk a lot about. And, you know, I mentioned my mum sending me to university. I count my blessings every day because the way I kind of recount my story now is that I suppose sport helped me navigate my route through my youth rather than sport using me. So in a way, I've kind of used sport, you know, through scholarships, master's, PhD. It led me to a job and and experiences. You know, I got to travel much of the world in my 20s alongside it. And I think too many uh, young athletes get used by sport
2: particularly as it's become more commercialized. Yeah, and with sport drawing on the sort of public obviously, obviously these sports are there to so kind of entertain the public and that's where the public are paying their money whether it be free TV subscriptions or whatever it may be, but then people feel feel like they've got a right to comment,
0: mm-hmm. right?
2: And so I remember um, you were saying about man united and i remember when man united were riding high and you know you had the gigs, skulls but yeah, you know, the, the the dream team and they were on the academy and 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 then as they kind of started to come through and they were just becoming superstars but the reality was is they were working for a company they had these amazing service departments and then stories would break like they don't know how to change a light bulb it was because they don't have to Mm. if you work in industry or you work in a company you have facilities teams that do that for you you turn up the coffees there you don't bite you and uh and it's a real um i can imagine that just even the simple transition into real life for for people must just be a huge um uh kind of right angle shift which most people just don't have to deal with you figure stuff out but they these people don't necessarily get that option yeah you know, i suppose
0: it's very dependent on sport i suppose like as we were taught to cook for ourselves, how to eat well. Obviously, I moved away from home at 15, so um, when like boarding school was out, it was like, you know, mum or dad cook for me, so we have someone come in, or um, basically like a nanny, a sports nanny, and she'd teach us how to cook, and we do our own washing, and so you're taught to grow up really fast, but obviously, it's, we're not in the same sort of privileged, luxurious world that, you know, if I was, if I was the equivalent talent that I was in swimming in football, I'd be a multi-millionaire. Yeah. So I'm sure my lifestyle would have been very different, and I would have come out with, oh, well, how do you change a light bulb, or how do I turn the oven on? Like I, I get it, but in swimming, it's not something we 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 struggled with. <laughs> So obviously, you live in Bath at the moment, you spend a lot of time here, you mentioned F45. Um, obviously, part of the Bath Fitness cast is bringing the city together because it is rife with fitness. Fantastic trainers, lots and lots of independent gyms, whether they're yoga-based, hip-based, gym-based, they're just popping up everywhere, um, which is a self-employed trainer is absolutely fantastic. Um, it's a lot of competition and it's we're just you know trying to bring everything together. so you've been here for a while now and um, just yeah, what's your what's your opinion on on fitness in the city at the moment? I think it's
1: pretty thriving. um you know, I've heard you Matt talk about the fact that you know a couple of years ago the gyms were probably competing for what was a really small uh, demographic of people who were enthused by fitness and and were there to kind of be got yeah, whereas I think in the last couple of years you've seen it open up and you've seen, there's a real diversity, you know, there's people doing like older classes or there's people doing uh, Nordic walking classes, which I'm totally signed up for, by the way, all about the Nordic walking. Um, but there's a real like diversity of, of opportunities now. And obviously you've got heightened competition, Fly, Tonic, F45, just three that come to mind right away that do similar but unique things um, and are probably more in the intense side of the, the industry. But um you can tell it's thriving, but it's also the competition's there, but it is also really social. Mm. And one of the things that I think is a quirk of Bath being so small is that many of the trainers work at, at, at a lot of them, you know, Chris, Andy, Nat, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that means that the competition isn't there in your, or at least you as a consumer don't feel the the competition there you're, you're not being imposed on in any way because their livelihoods aren't attached to one in, in any
0: negative. in any other city though that like if you if i was in london they would someone would sign the trainer down ex- like, exclusively you wouldn't you wouldn't have that sort of free rainbow because bath is so small and you know there are a certain amount of trainers that work over a certain amount of gyms just goes to show so it takes that competitive element away but it's passionate about what we do and you're not necessarily like loyal to one it's you know, from Monday to Wednesday, I'll be all about fly Thursday, Friday I'm on the F45 train. They've got your PT stuff on the side. Like, it is really cool and it keeps my week really interesting. You know, I'm not in one place for six days of the week. I get to mix it up and it's the same community. The community is a massive, even though it's competitive, you know, like you guys go F45, but then I'll come and see you you're in the fly cafe having the pancakes. And it's it's just, it's, it's, it's almost mad because I don't think you'd see it anywhere else. So... It's a cool, tw- it's a cool take on it.
1: It definitely is. And I think the other, Bath being such a kind of, I suppose a, a beautiful city, a kind of a city of luxury in some ways, and a, a city that attracts a lot of good people. I think we're also spoiled when you consider that the population of the city and how small it is yep. to have the standard of trainers that we have. You know, one of the things that struck me being at F45 over the last year is, is the diversity of personalities, but also expertise, biographies um, and just styles. You know, I can take Chris's, you know, flamboyish kind of. <laughs> Careful. I can take us dancing around the the gym floor the, the maybe one or two nights a week. It's not one there.
0: size fits all, is it? Yeah. No, there's a train <laughs> of You know, I can't. Truth is, I'm just jealous.
1: I can't look at those biceps <laughs> too many days a week. But you, you've got different styles. And, and I, I think that uh, as a consumer, it, it helps you. It helps keep things fresh, it helps you from plateauing, but also you do feel the privilege of having really, really good, committed,
2: intelligent trainers. Yeah, and I think that when you see the people that are coming into the gyms as well, so you'll see the professional rugby players are in the gyms mm. in in buff. it's not as if they're in their own bespoke training facility on site, You know, there's a real kind of which I think gives credibility to the businesses actually in Bath that they're doing such a good job that people will come and use them. Yep. People want to come and chill out. People want to come in and, and the trainers, you know, I know some of the trainers in Bath have helped some of the you know, absolute elite sports people with their physio and with them. Yeah. And, and that again, builds a huge amount of credibility. So perhaps this is actually a bit of a lesson for the PTs in the, in the city, which is they could be that their stock is high, mm. uh, and they are very, very good at what they do. And I would encourage anyone to reach out to them um, because they invest a lot of time in the multi you know, in the levels of getting the qualifications, understanding you know the nutrition, the physio, the rehab, and. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more I think that that it is a real privilege to actually just be able to sort of connect very very quickly with with this group
1: and I think just to add to that one of the other things though I'll not give you too many compliments yeah let's not keep going if we can I got some Um, time just for the record I'm mainly not talking about Chris here (laughs) so many great trainers Um, but one of the other things is that Bath because it is so small and because it is quite tight knit but it's it's also quite chilled as a city you know you're in the countryside in five minutes and i think that rural margin does shape the culture of bath in in, in unique ways it is quirky it's in the west country you know you're five minutes out of bath and you've got some colorful characters (laughs) and i think that also helps make it helps helps ground some of the trainers because you know we live in a kind of social media obsessed instagram aesthetic Mm. where personal trainers have to I suppose, provide glossy pictures of their latest transformation or, you know, we live in Yep, yeah, he's currently flexing for the record. <laughs> uh, hope we got a picture of that. Um, but we live in a quite a, a, that can be quite shallow and it can be quite superficial. And I think one of the things about Bath is whether well, it's the likes of Chris, Nat, Andy, uh, there's so many people I could actually name. Yeah. They're quite authentic. You know, and, and I think that's really, really important. Even the socials that gyms will do or just meet them in the street, there's there's less of that kind of corporate, perhaps, edge that maybe some of the London gyms have where they're kind of competing for clients. And churn a, them in, churn them out. Yeah, that's it. There's a really nice social dimension that sometimes isn't talked about. And I think that is a quirk of Bath.
0: Well, I think you can flip it, though. Like you're saying from like a, a member perspective and, and working with the PTs is sick, but then you look at it from our perspective and it's like, you know, even part of this podcast, obviously I'd met you guys before this This was even a thing, but the stories that come out, like, that I guarantee 90% of who you train with have no idea about, you know, Canadian All-Star. You know, yeah. there's yeah. there's lots of things that, honestly, I found it so interesting just sat here and then some of the people we got lined up and yeah. it's just, it, it flips both ways. You know, you've, we've got some sick trainers out there with some great stories, great backgrounds, and it, it works both ways. There's some incredible members out there that, um we we're also given the opportunity to, to to share their fantastic stories i suppose so and
1: one of the things i've heard you guys talk about is kind of uh the cycles that a lot of people go in like bath as well set up because the gyms do have their unique kind of selling points and you know f45 is incredibly intense the hit training model and and uh it can get you very fit very quick and you know you can really bring your body fat down and add muscle et cetera. Et cetera but over time you may transition much like you have Matt, yeah. to thinking okay well my issue is that i can't put weight on and i'm actually very similar to you you know I, again i went home christmas this year and they're like you're gone again yeah and i was like well, shut up <laughs> <off. laughs> take that Dad." <laughs> um but and, and i think there is that nice diversity of options yeah. that you've got you know and and uh That that again is 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 a really nice feature of it. I think. Yeah. So
2: I guess a little plug for for the show. We we've been when we started this. I guess we're now. This is probably going to be episode six if it if it goes out as we expect. And we've been completely bowled over by the feedback that we've got. Um and 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 honestly when we first started this we thought "Ah, if a couple of hundred people listen to the show, you know, from the city and it promotes a bit of what the guys and girls do in Bath then that'll be fantastic. And we've had listeners from all over the world. Literally. (laughs) I mean it's blown our minds. Canadian Canadian market is open. Yeah. Canada Canada (laughs) is up there. Yeah, it's definitely up there in terms of one of the biggest listening bases as well. Um, But we've had we've had Chechnya, Cape Verde, we've had Barbados, Thailand Australia, um, and... New Zealand, uh, a lot across Europe as well. Denmark, Belgium. So we were really surprised, and and um, and so I guess a bit of a plug to the city. You know, uh, Fly started doing tourist passes now um, for for people that come into the city because the hotels don't necessarily have great gyms because they're a little you know they're listed buildings, and and uh, I think that's a great innovation by by Fly to do those those tourist passes. So you know, if you're in town, you can uh, again reach out to us and we'll put you in touch with them yes, or the trainers. Um, but the idea is that hopefully this actually brings some tourism in to the, to the city as well. And when people are here, it's it's not just a, a weekend blowout. It's come, train, get to know the vibe of the city, go out and check out the nice restaurants, uh, walk around the, the, the circus. And yeah, it's just a great place to be, right? That's right. And that's what people want
1: now. You know, that, that just that option of a, a tourism pass or a tourist pass, It's that's humanizing the fitness industry in a way that the fitness industry isn't always. Like it can be incredibly intimidating for people. To come in, you know, I'm always conscious at F45 where we have people coming in who perhaps have struggled, might perhaps are a bit older, uh, perhaps a, a young woman comes in, and and it's helping to humanise the industry in important ways and make it more inclusive, more acceptable. Mm. Uh, but also, yeah, I mean, make Bath a, a kind of fitness destination. The city is so well set up for that. Yeah, and I think probably one of the things that the gyms could do better right now is make use of the hinterland, the, the geography around Bath, you know, yeah. whether it's the Jacob's Ladder, whether it's, you know, the... The, the skyline. There is such a diversity of options to actually
2: navigate the city itself yep. in, in fitness terms. Yeah. Um yeah, we're spoiled. It's great. So the final question has to be as ever about music. This is gonna be fascinating, it's, this this um, and I know we've dropped this one right on you as well. So musical taste, go to training, what what what's it what's on the uh, what's on the headphones? Look, since I've been sixteen it's
1: remained the same. It's boy zone for warm up. But a West life to ease me in the <laughs> full oh, fat catalog of violence he's being serious by the way <laughs> and you too when things really get going
0: <laughs> well you heard it here first guys um on that note yeah let's uh, wrap up the episode dara thank you so much for coming on it was an absolute pleasure um i've uh, listened and there's so many similarities in our journey and i know matt shares some similarities in your fitness journey um hopefully you listeners will absolutely love it like we have and again if you want to reach out or have any questions, please just slide into DMs. And uh yeah, till next time. Pleasure. Thanks for having me guys. Thanks.